Chapters six and seven of Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Isabel Archer was a young person of many theories. Her imagination was remarkably active. It had been her fortune to possess a finer mind than most of the persons among whom her lot was cast, to have a larger perception of surrounding facts, and to care for knowledge that was tinged with the unfamiliar. It was true that among her contemporaries she passed for a young woman of extraordinary profundity, for these excellent people never withheld their admiration from a reach of intellect of which they themselves were not conscious, and spoke of Isabel as a prodigy of learning, a creature reported to have read the classic authors in translations. Her paternal aunt, Mrs. Varian, once spread the rumour that Isabel was writing a book, Mrs. Varian having a reverence for books, and averred that the girl would distinguish herself in print. Mrs. Varian thought highly of literature, for which she entertained that esteem that is connected with a sense of privation. Her own large house, remarkable for its assortment of mosaic tables and decorated ceilings, was unfurnished with a library, and in the way of printed volumes contained nothing but half a dozen novels and paper on a shelf in the apartment of one of the Miss Varians. Practically, Mrs. Varian's acquaintance with literature was confined to the New York interviewer. As she very justly said, after you had read the interviewer, you had lost all faith in culture. Her tendency with this was rather to keep the interviewer out of the way of her daughters. She was determined to bring them up properly, and they read nothing at all. Her impression with regard to Isabel's labours was quite illusory. The girl had never attempted to write a book, and had no desire for the laurels of authorship. She had no talent for expression, and too little of the consciousness of genius. She only had a general idea that people were right, when they treated her as if she were rather superior. Whether or no she were superior, people were right in admiring her if they thought her so for it seemed to her often that her mind moved more quickly than theirs, and this encouraged an impatience that might easily be confounded with superiority. It may be affirmed without delay that Isabel was probably very liable to the sin of self-esteem. She often surveyed with complacency the field of her own nature. She was in the habit of taking for granted, on scanty evidence, that she was right. She treated herself to occasions of homage. Meanwhile, her errors and delusions were frequently such as a biographer interested in preserving the dignity of his subject must shrink from specifying. Her thoughts were a tangle of vague outlines which had never been corrected by the judgment of people speaking with authority. In matters of opinion, she had had her own way, and it had led her into a thousand ridiculous zigzags. At moments she discovered she was grotesquely wrong and then she treated herself to a week of passionate humility. After this she held her head higher than ever again, for it was of no use, she had an unquenchable desire to think well of herself. She had a theory that it was only under this provision life was worth living, that one should be one of the best, should be conscious of a fine organization, she couldn't help knowing her organization was fine, should move in a realm of light, of natural wisdom, of happy impulse, of inspiration gracefully chronic. It was almost as necessary to cultivate doubt of oneself as to cultivate doubt of one's best friend. 
one should try to be one's own best friend and to give oneself in this manner distinguished company the girl had a certain nobleness of imagination which rendered her a good many services and played her a great many tricks she spent half her time in thinking of beauty and bravery and magnanimity she had a fixed determination to regard the world as a place of brightness of free expansion of irresistible action she held it must be detestable to be afraid or ashamed she had an infinite hope that she should never do anything wrong she had resented so strongly after discovering them her mere errors of feeling the discovery always made her tremble as if she had escaped from a trap which might have caught her and smothered her that the chance of inflicting a sensible injury upon another person presented only as a contingency caused her at moments to hold her breath that always struck her as the worst thing that could happen to her on the whole reflectively she was in no uncertainty about the things that were wrong she had no love of their look but when she fixed them hard she recognized them it was wrong to be mean to be jealous to be false to be cruel she had seen very little of the evil of the world but she had seen women who lied and who tried to hurt each other seeing such things had quickened her high spirit it seemed indecent not to scorn them of course the danger of a high spirit was the danger of inconsistency the danger of keeping up the flag after the place is surrendered a sort of behaviour so crooked as to be almost a dishonour to the flag but isabel who knew little of the sorts of artillery to which young women are exposed flattered herself that such contradictions would never be noted in her own conduct her life should always be in harmony with the most pleasing impression she should produce she would be what she appeared and she would appear what she was sometimes she went so far as to wish that she might find herself some day in a difficult position so that they should have the pleasure of being as heroic as the occasion demanded altogether with her meagre knowledge her inflated ideals her confidence at once innocent and dogmatic her temper at once exacting and indulgent her mixture of curiosity and fastidiousness of vivacity and indifference her desire to look very well and to be if possible even better her determination to see to try to know her combination of the delicate desultory flame-like spirit and the eager and personal creature of conditions she would be an easy victim of scientific criticism if she were not intended to awaken on the reader's part an impulse more tender and more purely expectant it was one of her theories that isabel archer was very fortunate in being independent and that she ought to make some very enlightened use of that state she never called it the state of solitude much less of singleness she thought such descriptions weak and besides her sister lily constantly urged her to come and abide she had a friend whose acquaintance she had made shortly before her father's death who offered so high an example of useful activity that isabel always thought of her as a model henrietta stackpole had the advantage of an admired ability she was thoroughly launched in journalism and her letters to the interviewer from washington newport the white mountains and other places were universally quoted isabel pronounced them with confidence ephemeral 
but she esteemed the courage energy and good humour of the writer who without parents and without property had adopted three of the children of an infirm and widowed sister and was paying their school bills out of the proceeds of her literary labour henrietta was in the van of progress and had clear-cut ideas on most subjects her cherished desire had long been to come to europe and to write a series of letters to the interviewer from the radical point of view an enterprise the less difficult as she knew perfectly in advance what her opinions would be and to how many objections most european institutions lay open when she heard that isabel was coming she wished to start at once thinking naturally that it would be delightful the two should travel together she had been obliged however to postpone this enterprise she thought isabel a glorious creature and had spoken of her covertly in some of her letters though she never mentioned the fact to her friend who would not have taken pleasure in it and was not a regular student of the interviewer henrietta for isabel was chiefly a proof that a woman might suffice to herself and be happy her resources were of the obvious kind but even if one had not the journalistic talent and a genius for guessing as henrietta said what the public was going to want one was not therefore to conclude that one had no vocation no beneficent aptitude of any sort and resign oneself to being frivolous and hollow isabel was stoutly determined not to be hollow if one should wait with the right patience one would find some happy work to one's hand of course among her theories this young lady was not without a collection of views on the subject of marriage the first on the list was a conviction of the vulgarity of thinking too much of it from lapsing into eagerness on this point she earnestly prayed she might be delivered she held that a woman ought to be able to live to herself in the absence of exceptional flimsiness and that it was perfectly possible to be happy without the society of a more or less coarse-minded person of another sex the girl's prayer was very sufficiently answered something pure and proud that there was in her something cold and dry an unappreciated suitor with a taste for analysis might have called it had hitherto kept her from any great vanity of conjecture on the article of possible husbands few of the men she saw seemed worth a ruinous expenditure and it made her smile to think that one of them should present himself as an incentive to hope and a reward of patience deep in her soul it was the deepest thing there lay a belief that if a certain light should dawn she could give herself completely but this image on the whole was too formidable to be attractive isabel's thoughts hovered about it but they seldom rested on it long after a little it ended in alarms it often seemed to her that she thought too much about herself you could have made her colour any day in the year by calling her a rank egoist she was always planning out her development desiring her perfection observing her progress her nature had in her conceit a certain garden-like quality a suggestion of perfume and murmuring boughs of shady bowers and lengthening vistas which made her feel that introspection was after all an exercise in the open air and that a visit to the recesses of one's spirit was harmless when one returned from it with a lapful of roses 
but she was often reminded that there were other gardens in the world than those of her remarkable soul and that there were moreover a great many places which were not gardens at all only dusky pestiferous tracts planted thick with ugliness and misery in the current of that repaid curiosity on which she had lately been floating which had conveyed her to this beautiful old england and might carry her much further still she often checked herself with the thought of the thousands of people who were less happy than herself a thought which for the moment made her fine full consciousness appear a kind of immodesty what should one do with the misery of the world in a scheme of the agreeable for oneself it must be confessed that this question never held her long she was too young too impatient to live too unacquainted with pain she always returned to her theory that a young woman whom after all every one thought clever should begin by getting a general impression of life this impression was necessary to prevent mistakes and after it should be secured she might make the unfortunate condition of others a subject of special attention england was a revelation to her and she found herself as diverted as a child at a pantomime in her infantine excursions to europe she had seen only the continent and had seen it from the nursery window paris not london was her father's mecca and into many of interests there his children had naturally not entered the images of that time moreover had grown faint and remote and the old-world quality in everything that she now saw had all the charm of strangeness her uncle's house seemed a picture made real no refinement of the agreeable was lost upon isabel the rich perfection of garden court at once revealed a world and gratified a need the large low rooms with brown ceilings and dusky corners the deep embrasures and curious casements the quiet light on dark polished panels the deep greenness outside that seemed always peeping in the sense of well-ordered privacy in the centre of a property a place where sounds were felicitously accidental where the tread was muffled by the earth itself and in the thick mild air all friction dropped out of contact and all shrillness out of talk these things were much to the taste of our young lady whose taste played a considerable role in her emotions she formed a fast friendship with her uncle and often sat by his chair when he had had it moved out to the lawn he passed hours in the open air sitting with folded hands like a placid homely household god a god of service who had done his work and received his wages and was trying to grow used to weeks and months made up only of off days isabel amused him more than she suspected the effect she produced upon people was often different from what she supposed and he frequently gave himself the pleasure of making her chatter it was by this term that he qualified her conversation which had much of the point observable in that of the young ladies of her country to whom the ear of the world is more directly presented than to their sisters in other lands like the mass of american girls isabel had been encouraged to express herself her remarks had been attended to she had been expected to have emotions and opinions many of her opinions had doubtless but a slender value 
many of her motions passed away in the utterance but they had left a trace in giving her the habit of seeming at least to feel and think and in imparting moreover to her words when she was really touched that prompt vividness which so many people had regarded as a sign of superiority mr touchett used to think that she reminded him of his wife when his wife was in her teens it was because she was fresh and natural and quick to understand to speak so many characteristics of her niece that he had fallen in love with mrs touchett he never expressed this analogy to the girl herself however for if mrs touchett had once been like isabel isabel was not at all like mrs touchett the old man was full of kindness for her it was a long time as he said since they had had any young life in the house and our rustling quickly moving clear-voiced heroine was as agreeable to his sense as the sound of flowing water he wanted to do something for her and wished she would ask it of him she would ask nothing but questions it is true that of these she asked a quantity her uncle had a great fund of answers though her pressure sometimes came in forms that puzzled him she questioned him immensely about england about the british constitution the english character the state of politics the manners and customs of the royal family the peculiarities of the aristocracy the way of living and thinking of his neighbours and in begging to be enlightened on these points she usually inquired whether they corresponded with the descriptions in the books the old man always looked at her a little with his fine dry smile while he smoothed down the shawl spread across his legs the books he once said well i don't know much about the books you must ask ralph about that i've always ascertained for myself got my information in the natural form i never asked many questions even i just kept quiet and took notice of course i've had very good opportunities better than what a young lady would naturally have i'm of an inquisitive disposition though you mightn't think it if you were to watch me however much you might watch me i should be watching you more i've been watching these people for upwards of thirty-five years and i don't hesitate to say that i've acquired considerable information it's a very fine country on the whole finer perhaps than what we give it credit for on the other side there are several improvements i should like to see introduced but the necessity of them doesn't seem to be generally felt as yet when the necessity of a thing is generally felt they usually manage to accomplish it but they seem to feel pretty comfortable about waiting till then i certainly feel more at home among them than i expected to when i first came over I suppose it's because I've had a considerable degree of success. When you're successful, you naturally feel more at home. Do you suppose that if I'm successful, I shall feel at home? Isabel asked. I should think it very probable, and you certainly will be successful. They like American young ladies very much over here. They show them a great deal of kindness. But you mustn't feel too much at home, you know. "'Oh, I'm by no means sure it will satisfy me,' Isabel judicially emphasized. "'I like the place very much, but I'm not sure I shall like the people.' "'The people are very good people, especially if you like them.' "'I've no doubt they're good,' Isabel rejoined. "'But are they pleasant in society? "'They won't rob me nor beat me, but will they make themselves agreeable to me? "'That's what I like people to do. 
I don't hesitate to say so, because I always appreciate it. I don't believe they're very nice to girls. They're not nice to them in the novels. I don't know about the novels, said Mr. Touchett. I believe the novels have a great deal of ability, but I don't suppose they're very accurate. We once had a lady who wrote novels staying here. She was a friend of Ralph's, and he asked her down. She was very positive, quite up to everything, but she was not the sort of person you could depend on for evidence. Too free a fancy, I suppose that was it. She afterwards published a work of fiction in which she was understood to have given a representation, something in the nature of a caricature, as you might say, of my unworthy self. I didn't read it, but Ralph just handed me the book with the principal passages marked. It was understood to be a description of my conversation. American peculiarities, nasal twang, Yankee notions, stars and stripes. Well, it was not at all accurate. She couldn't have listened very attentively. I had no objection to her giving a report of my conversation if she liked, but I didn't like the idea that she hadn't taken the trouble to listen to it. Of course, I talk like an American. I can't talk like a Hottentot. However I talk, I've made them understand me pretty well over here. But I don't talk like the old gentleman in that lady's novel. He wasn't an American. We wouldn't have him over there at any price. I just mention that fact to show you that they're not always accurate. Of course, as I've no daughters, and as Mrs. Touchett resides in Florence, I haven't had much chance to notice about the young ladies. It sometimes appears as if the young women in the lower class were not very well treated, but I guess their position is better in the upper, and even to some extent in the middle. Gracious, Isabel exclaimed, how many classes have they? About fifty, I suppose. Well, I don't know that I ever counted them. I never took much notice of the classes. That's the advantage of being an American here. You don't belong to any class. I hope so, said Isabel. Imagine one's belonging to an English class. Well, I guess some of them are pretty comfortable, especially towards the top. But for me, there are only two classes, the people I trust and the people I don't. Of those two, my dear Isabel, you belong to the first. I'm much obliged to you, said the girl quickly. Her way of taking compliments seemed sometimes rather dry. She got rid of them as rapidly as possible. But as regards this she was sometimes misjudged. She was thought insensible to them, whereas in fact she was simply unwilling to show how infinitely they pleased her. To show that was to show too much. I'm sure the English are very conventional, she added. They've got everything pretty well fixed, Mr. Touchett admitted. It's all settled beforehand. They don't leave it to the last moment. I don't like to have everything settled beforehand, said the girl. I like more unexpectedness. Her uncle seemed amused at her distinctness of preference. Well, it's settled beforehand that you'll have great success, he rejoined. I suppose you'll like that. I shall not have success if they're too stupidly conventional. I'm not in the least stupidly conventional. I'm just the contrary. That's what they won't like. No, no, you're all wrong, said the old man. You can't tell what they'll like. They're very inconsistent. That's their principal interest. Ah, well, said Isabel, standing before her uncle, with her hands clasped about the belt of her black dress, and looking up and down the lawn, that will suit me perfectly. 
End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 The two amused themselves time and time again with talking of the attitude of the British public as if the young lady had been in a position to appeal to it. But in fact the British public remained for the present profoundly indifferent to Miss Isabel Archer, whose fortune had dropped her, as her cousin said, into the dullest house in England. Her gouty uncle received very little company, and Mrs. Touchett, not having cultivated relations with her husband's neighbours, was not warranted in expecting visits from them. She had, however, a peculiar taste. She liked to receive cards. For what is usually called social intercourse, she had very little relish, but nothing pleased her more than to find her hall-table whitened with oblong morsels of symbolic pasteboard. She flattered herself that she was a very just woman, and had mastered the sovereign truth that nothing in this world is got for nothing. She had played no social part as mistress of Garden Court, and it was not to be supposed that in the surrounding country a minute account should be kept of her comings and goings. But it is by no means certain that she did not feel it to be wrong that so little notice was taken of them, and that her failure, really very gratuitous, to make herself important in the neighbourhood had not much to do with the acrimony of her allusions to her husband's adopted country. Isabel presently found herself in the singular situation of defending the British Constitution against her aunt, Mrs. Touchett having formed the habit of sticking pins into this venerable instrument. Isabel always felt an impulse to pull out the pins, not that she imagined they inflicted any damage on the tough old parchment, but because it seemed to her her aunt might make better use of her sharpness. She was very critical herself. It was incidental to her age, her sex, and her nationality. But she was very sentimental as well, and there was something in Mrs. Touchett's dryness that set her own moral fountains flowing. "'Now, what's your point of view?' she asked of her aunt. "'When you criticise everything here, you should have a point of view. Yours doesn't seem to be American. You thought everything over there so disagreeable.' When I criticise, I have mine. It's thoroughly American. My dear young lady, said Mrs. Touchett, there are as many points of view in the world as there are people of sense to take them. You may say that doesn't make them very numerous. American? Never in the world. That's shockingly narrow. My point of view, thank God, is personal. Isabel thought this a better answer than she admitted. It was a tolerable description of her own manner of judging, but it would not have sounded well for her to say so. On the lips of a person less advanced in life, and less enlightened by experience than Mrs. Touchett, such a declaration would savour of immodesty, even of arrogance. She risked it, nevertheless, in talking with Ralph, with whom she talked a great deal, and with whom her conversation was of a sort that gave a large licence to extravagance. Her cousin used, as the phrase is, to chaff her. He very soon established with her a reputation for treating everything as a joke, and he was not a man to neglect the privileges such a reputation conferred. She accused him of an odious want of seriousness, of laughing at all things, beginning with himself. Such slender faculty of reverence as he possessed centred wholly upon his father. For the rest, he exercised his wit indifferently upon his father's son, 
this gentleman's weak lungs, his useless life, his fantastic mother, his friends, Lord Warburton in special, his adopted and his native country, his charming new-found cousin. I keep a band of music in my ante-room, he once said to her. It has orders to play without stopping. It renders me two excellent services. It keeps the sounds of the world from reaching the private apartments, and it makes the world think that dancing's going on within. It was dance music, indeed, that you usually heard when you came within earshot of Ralph's band. The liveliest waltzes seemed to float upon the air. Isabel often found herself irritated by this perpetual fiddling. She would have liked to pass through the ante-room, as her cousin called it, and enter the private apartments. It mattered little that he had assured her they were a very dismal place. She would have been glad to undertake to sweep them and set them in order. It was but half hospitality to let her remain outside, to punish him for which Isabel administered innumerable taps with the ferrule of her straight young wit. It must be said that her wit was exercised to a large extent in self-defence, for her cousin amused himself with calling her Columbia, and accusing her of a patriotism so heated that it scorched. He drew a caricature of her, in which she was represented as a very pretty young woman, dressed on the lines of the prevailing fashion in the folds of the national banner. Isabel's chief dread in life, at this period of her development, was that she should appear narrow-minded. What she feared next afterwards was that she should really be so. But she nevertheless made no scruple of abounding in her cousin's sense, and pretending to sigh for the charms of her native land. She would be as American as it pleased him to regard her, and if he chose to laugh at her, she would give him plenty of occupation. She defended England against his mother, but when Ralph sang its praises, on purpose, as she said, to work her up, she found herself able to differ from him on a variety of points. In fact, the quality of this small, ripe country seemed as sweet to her as the taste of an October pear, and her satisfaction was at the root of the good spirits which enabled her to take her cousin's chaff and return it in kind. If her good humour flagged at moments, it was not because she thought herself ill-used, but because she suddenly felt sorry for Ralph. It seemed to her he was talking as a blind and had little heart in what he said. "'I don't know what's the matter with you,' she observed to him once, "'but I suspect you're a great humbug.' "'That's your privilege,' Ralph answered, who had not been used to being so crudely addressed. "'I don't know what you care for.' I don't think you care for anything. You don't really care for England when you praise it. You don't care for America even when you pretend to abuse it. I care for nothing but you, dear cousin, said Ralph. If I could believe even that, I should be very glad. Ah, well, I should hope so, the young man exclaimed. Isabel might have believed it, and not have been far from the truth. He thought a great deal about her, she was constantly present to his mind. At a time when his thoughts had been a good deal of a burden to him, her sudden arrival, which promised nothing, and was an open-handed gift of fate, had refreshed and quickened them, given them wings and something to fly for. Poor Ralph had been for many weeks steeped in melancholy. 
his outlook habitually sombre lay under the shadow of a deeper cloud he had grown anxious about his father whose gout hitherto confined to his legs had begun to ascend into regions more vital the old man had been gravely ill in the spring and the doctors had whispered to ralph that another attack would be less easy to deal with just now he appeared disburdened of pain but ralph could not rid himself of a suspicion that this was a subterfuge of the enemy who was waiting to take him off his guard if the manoeuvre should succeed there would be little hope of any great resistance ralph had always taken for granted that his father would survive him that his own name would be the first grimly called the father and son had been close companions and the idea of being left alone with the remnant of a tasteless life on his hands was not gratifying to the young man who had always and tacitly counted upon his elder's help in making the best of a poor business at the prospect of losing his great motive ralph lost indeed his one inspiration if they might die at the same time it would be all very well but without the encouragement of his father's society he should barely have patience to await his own turn he had not the incentive of feeling that he was indispensable to his mother it was a rule with his mother to have no regrets he bethought himself of course that it had been a small kindness to his father to wish that of the two the active rather than the passive party should know the felt wound he remembered that the old man had always treated his own forecast of an early end as a clever fallacy which he should be delighted to discredit so far as he might by dying first but of the two triumphs that of refuting a sophistical son and that of holding on a while longer in a state of being which with all abatements he enjoyed ralph deemed it no sin to hope the latter might be vouchsafed to mr touchett these were nice questions but isabel's arrival put a stop to his puzzling over them it even suggested that there might be a compensation for the intolerable ennui of surviving his genial sire he wondered whether he were harbouring love for this spontaneous young woman from albany but he judged that on the whole he was not after he had known her for a week he quite made up his mind to this and every day he felt a little more sure lord warburton had been right about her she was a really interesting little figure ralph wondered how their neighbour had found it out so soon and then he said it was only another proof of his friend's high abilities which he had always greatly admired if his cousin were to be nothing more than an entertainment to him ralph was conscious she was an entertainment of a high order a character like that he said to himself a real little passionate force to see at play is the finest thing in nature it's finer than the finest work of art than a greek bas-relief than a great titian than a gothic cathedral it's very pleasant to be so well treated where one had least looked for it i had never been more blue more bored than for a week before she came i had never expected less that anything pleasant would happen suddenly i receive a titian by the post to hang on my wall a greek bas-relief to stick over my chimney-piece the key of a beautiful edifice is thrust into my hand and i am told to walk in and admire 
my poor boy you've been sadly ungrateful and now you had better keep very quiet and never grumble again the sentiment of these reflections was very just but it was not exactly true that ralph touchett had had a key put into his hand his cousin was a very brilliant girl who would take as he said a good deal of knowing but she needed the knowing and his attitude with regard to her though it was contemplative and critical was not judicial he surveyed the edifice from the outside and admired it greatly he looked in at the windows and received an impression of proportions equally fair but he felt that he saw it only by glimpses and that he had not yet stood under the roof the door was fastened and though he had keys in his pocket he had a conviction that none of them would fit she was intelligent and generous it was a fine free nature but what was she going to do with herself the question was irregular for with most women one had no occasion to ask it most women did with themselves nothing at all they waited in attitudes more or less gracefully passive for a man to come that way and furnish them with a destiny isabel's originality was that she gave one an impression of having intentions of her own whenever she executes them said ralph may i be there to see it devolved upon him of course to do the honours of the place mr touchett was confined to his chair and his wife's position was that of a rather grim visitor so that in the line of conduct that opened itself to ralph duty and inclination were harmoniously mixed he was not a great walker but he strolled about the grounds with his cousin a pastime for which the weather remained favourable with a persistency not allowed for in isabel's somewhat lugubrious prevision of the climate and in the long afternoons of which the length was but the measure of her gratified eagerness they took a boat on the river the dear little river as isabel called it where the opposite shore seemed still a part of the foreground of the landscape or drove over the country in a phaeton a low capacious thick-wheeled phaeton formerly much used by mr touchett but which he had now ceased to enjoy isabel enjoyed it largely and handling the reins in a manner which approved itself to the groom as knowing was never weary of driving her uncle's capital horses through winding lanes and byways full of the rural incidents she had confidently expected to find past cottages thatched and timbered past alehouses latticed and sanded past patches of ancient common and glimpses of empty parks between hedgerows made thick by midsummer when they reached home they usually found tea had been served on the lawn and that mrs touchett had not shrunk from the extremity of handing her husband his cup but the two for the most part sat silent the old man with his head back and his eyes closed his wife occupied with her knitting and wearing that appearance of rare profundity with which some ladies consider the movement of their needles one day however a visitor had arrived the two young persons after spending an hour on the river strolled back to the house and perceived lord warburton sitting under the trees and engaged in conversation of which even at a distance the desultory character was appreciable with mrs touchett he had driven over from his own place with a portmanteau and had asked as the father and son often invited him to do for a dinner and a lodging 
Isabel, seeing him for half an hour on the day of her arrival, had discovered in this brief space that she liked him. He had indeed rather sharply registered himself on her fine sense, and she had thought of him several times. She had hoped she should see him again, hoped, too, that she should see a few others. Garden Court was not dull. The place itself was sovereign. Her uncle was more and more a sort of golden grandfather, and Ralph was unlike any cousin she had ever encountered, her idea of cousins having tended to gloom. Then her impressions were still so fresh and so quickly renewed that there was as yet hardly a hint of vacancy in the view. But Isabel had need to remind herself that she was interested in human nature, and that her foremost hope in coming abroad had been that she should see a great many people. When Ralph said to her, as he had done several times, "'I wonder you find this endurable. You ought to see some of the neighbours and some of our friends, because we have really got a few, though you would never suppose it.' when he offered to invite what he called a lot of people and make her acquainted with english society she encouraged the hospitable impulse and promised in advance to hurl herself into the fray little however for the present had come of his offers and it may be confided to the reader that if the young man delayed to carry them out it was because he found the labour of providing for his companion by no means so severe as to require extraneous help Isabel had spoken to him very often about specimens. It was a word that played a considerable part in her vocabulary. She had given him to understand that she wished to see English society illustrated by eminent cases. "'Well, now, there's a specimen,' he said to her, as they walked up from the riverside, and he recognized Lord Warburton. "'A specimen of what?' asked the girl. "'A specimen of an English gentleman.' "'Do you mean they're all like him?' "'Oh, no, they're not all like him.' "'He's a favourable specimen, then,' said Isabel, "'because I'm sure he's nice.' "'Yes, he's very nice, and he's very fortunate.' The fortunate Lord Warburton exchanged a handshake with our heroine, and hoped she was very well. "'But I needn't ask that,' he said, "'since you've been handling the oars.' "'I've been rowing a little,' Isabel answered, "'but how should you know it?' "'Oh, I know he doesn't row. He's too lazy,' said his lordship, indicating Ralph Touchett with a laugh. "'He has a good excuse for his laziness,' Isabel rejoined, lowering her voice a little. "'Ah, he has a good excuse for everything,' cried Lord Warburton, still with his sonorous mirth. "'My excuse for not rowing is that my cousin rows so well,' said Ralph. "'She does everything well. She touches nothing that she doesn't adorn.' "'It makes one want to be touched, Miss Archer,' Lord Warburton declared. "'Be touched in the right sense, and you'll never look the worse for it,' said Isabel, who, if it pleased her to hear it said that her accomplishments were numerous, was happily able to reflect that such complacency was not the indication of a feeble mind, inasmuch as there were several things in which she excelled. Her desire to think well of herself had at least the element of humility that it always needed to be supported by proof. Lord Warburton not only spent the night at Garden Court, but he was persuaded to remain over the second day, and when the second day was ended he determined to postpone his departure till the morrow. During this period he addressed many of his remarks to Isabel, 
who accepted this evidence of his esteem with a very good grace. She found herself liking him extremely. The first impression he had made on her had had weight, but at the end of an evening spent in his society she scarce fell short of seeing him, though quite without luridity, as a hero of romance. She retired to rest with a sense of good fortune, with a quickened consciousness of possible felicities. "'It's very nice to know two such charming people as those,' she said, meaning by those, her cousin and her cousin's friend. It must be added, moreover, that an incident had occurred which might have seemed to put her good humour to the test. Mr. Touchett went to bed at half-past nine o'clock, but his wife remained in the drawing-room with the other members of the party. She prolonged her vigil for something less than an hour, and then, rising, observed to Isabel that it was time they should bid the gentlemen good-night. Isabel had as yet no desire to go to bed. The occasion wore, to her sense, a festive character, and feasts were not in the habit of terminating so early. So without further thought she replied very simply, "'Need I go, dear aunt? I'll come up in half an hour.' "'It's impossible I should wait for you,' Mrs. Touchett answered. "'Ah, you needn't wait. Ralph will light my candle,' Isabel gaily engaged. "'I'll light your candle. Do let me light your candle, Miss Archer,' Lord Warburton exclaimed. "'Only I beg it shall not be before midnight.' Mrs. Touchett fixed her bright little eyes upon him a moment, and transferred them coldly to her niece. "'You can't stay alone with the gentleman. You're not—you're uh, not at your blessed Albany, my dear.' Isabel rose, blushing. "'I wish I were,' she said. "'Oh, I say, mother,' Ralph broke out. "'My dear Mrs. Touchett,' Lord Warburton murmured. "'I didn't make your country, my lord,' Mrs. Touchett said majestically. I must take it as I find it. Can't I stay with my own cousin? Isabel inquired. I'm not aware that Lord Warburton is your cousin. Perhaps I had better go to bed, the visitor suggested. That will arrange it. Mrs. Touchett gave a little look of despair and sat down again. Oh, if it's necessary, I'll stay up till midnight. Ralph, meanwhile, handed Isabel her candlestick. He had been watching her. It had seemed to him her temper was involved, an accident that might be interesting. But if he had expected anything of a flare, he was disappointed, for the girl simply laughed a little, nodded good-night, and withdrew, accompanied by her aunt. For himself he was annoyed at his mother, though he thought she was right. Above stairs the two ladies separated at Mrs. Touchett's door. Isabel had said nothing on her way up. "'Of course you're vexed at my interfering with you,' said Mrs. Touchett. Isabel considered. "'I'm not vexed, but I'm surprised, and a good deal mystified. Wasn't it proper I should remain in the drawing-room?' "'Not in the least. Young girls here, in decent houses, don't sit alone with the gentlemen late at night.' "'You were very right to tell me, then,' said Isabel. "'I don't understand it, but I'm very glad to know it.' "'I shall always tell you,' her aunt answered, "'whenever I see you taking what seems to me too much liberty. "'Pray do, but I don't say I shall always think your remonstrance just.' "'Very likely not. You're too fond of your own ways.' "'Yes, I think I'm very fond of them, 
but i always want to know the things one shouldn't do so as to do them asked her aunt so as to choose said isabel End of chapter seven